When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. What's up, everybody? March 3rd edition of the Fightful MMA Podcast. Yours truly, Joe Ferraro. Make sure you follow me online at Showdown Joe on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, you can follow my guest, uh, Reed Kuhn, at Fightnomics on Twitter. Reed, we haven't seen you in a while. You were on vacation. Uh, how, what was that like? And have you updated your social media to include Facebook and Instagram yet? <laughs> haven't done uh, Instagram yet, but I am on Facebook now. Um, so I've been posting a lot of graphs and articles there. Uh, vacation was great. Thanks for asking. Paso Robles. I didn't know I was pronouncing it incorrectly the whole time until I got there. Uh, and uh, wine country. Very good. Very nice. Got to relax a little bit. And I watched the, the Holly Holm, uh, Jermaine Durandamy fight uh, from there. Uh, so it was, you know, it was nice. Get away. Were you the only one watching the event or were there others that were intrigued as well? Uh, we just ordered it at a rental house, actually. Did the whole Airbnb thing. <laughs> oh no way cool that's very cool all yeah. right uh well since got, some others, got some others into it you know we watched ufc actually did a cleverly did a replay of the holly Holm ronda rousey fight the night before on tv for free uh so by the time i ordered the pay-per-view other people were starting to oh is this that girl again you know so it was fun well that's see that's what i'm saying so in order to be i mean i've been saying that for years you, you got to be strategic when you're doing things it was actually one of the things that um another network here is doing now but something i had pitched uh, we had the tv show when we were at sportsnet so we would we would obviously be previewing and recapping and and getting people ready but every so often i said look if there's something big going on we should do sort of a a you know a, almost a where is this fighter coming from their last you know, fight or last two fights, this one, and now we're getting here the night before. But obviously the UFC uh, did a smart job doing that uh, to broadcast, broadcast that down there. Now, since you've been gone, a variety of news um, has taken place in the world of mixed martial arts. Obviously, George St. Pierre uh, has officially signed. George St. Pierre officially has an opponent later today. The press conference with Michael Bisping, the UFC middleweight champion, who is George's opponent, will go down. They will discuss, uh, obviously, the particulars, how it all came to be, hopefully the date as to when it's going to happen. Yesterday, we had Frank Trigg on the show, on the podcast here, and he, he, he suggested, obviously, um, International Fight Week in July. It's a big event. UFC spends a lot of money, so they want to get you know a return on their investment, and that's a big fight right there. Uh, but you put together a graph, uh, a graph with George St. Pierre versus Michael Bisping. It's available on your timeline, obviously on Facebook. It's on, uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, give us your thoughts on, on that matchup there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now, the odds have also already been released for this, and they opened GSP as a slight favorite, not a huge favorite, um, and when you look at the graph, that makes sense. But remember, this graph is assessing performance to date um, that they've actually done in their own division. So remember, GSP has only fought at welterweight. Michael Bisping actually used to fight even higher than middleweight. Most of his, his career is at middleweight. 
Uh, so you look at these numbers, and GSP actually comes out uh, looking pretty good. Um, and, not, and not just even the performance metrics, actually in the size and reach department, which is kind of crazy. So he's not only younger than Bisping, uh, he's rangier as a welterweight. Um, GSP was actually one of the rangiest welterweights ever. Um, there's only a couple, a handful of fringe guys that were longer than he is. So Neil Magny and I think um, and someone else. But uh, GSP always had that very long range attack and he had a huge advantage over his opponents and he was able to jab them to death if he wanted to. He was able to reach out and get those takedowns if he wanted to. Um, so he was a very efficient, effective, smart fighter. Uh, Bisbing, his performance metrics don't look quite as good He's got a couple losses, uh, you know, on that record. Um, he's been taking five rounds and actually, you know, in mixed round situations where he's losing some, he's winning some. Uh, so his performance metrics simply are not going to look as good as GSP. But changing weight classes does change things. Uh, this will be a big guy, a, a bigger and more long range guy that GSP has fought lately. Um, Bisbing is a very busy guy. He's able to stick and move. Um, so you know, I, there's also the question marks about what kind of shape is GSP going to be in, uh, in terms of not just physically, but mentally, um, cage condition, shape. There, There is something to be said for competing in an octagon, knowing the person on the other side is coming to get you and going through that fairly routinely. It just keeps you, it keeps sharpening that, that tool, that blade that you have. So um, there's a lot of questions about this. And, you know, it's hard to predict a fight with that many uncertainties. Um, it is worth noting that GSP really does show up on paper as good as his career looks. And Bisbing's isn't quite as awesome as GSP's. But all signs point to Bisbing maybe being a very live underdog here. I'm sure he didn't mind this call out. They say that GSP demanded this fight. Fine. I think uh, GSP is probably a safer opponent than facing Jacare or or Yoel Romero uh, for sure, and probably even Luke Rockhold again for Bisping, um, just for his physical safety. This is probably a safer fight, but it's also still an intriguing one and definitely must see fight TV. Yeah, well, it's it's very intriguing for a oh my goodness a variety of reasons, not just for the matchup itself. Uh, before I get to why I think it's it's in, it's intriguing and why we discussed it over the past uh, week here at Fightful MMA. The odds that were released, obviously, were, were, were fairly close with GSP, the slight favorite. Do you think there's going to be some movement as we get closer to the fight? Because, obviously, George St. Pierre, the hype around his return uh, will probably move the lines separately in terms of making GSP the bigger favorite, or will they stay the same or perhaps move the other way? I think, if anything, they'll tighten up, I think, because of all the uncertainty, uh, because you will have people on both sides that feel passionately. Now, when you announce a fight without a fight date, which has been done before, um, and even odds have been have come live before for Conor McGregor matchups. I mean, if you go look for Conor McGregor odds, you'll find them against Khabib, against uh, Jose Aldo, against all these people. So um, you can find hypothetical odds. And what's interesting is that if you look at the history of those, they don't move, which basically suggests that very little action is actually coming out on them. They're, I think they're more to draw attention to get a little hype around the fight. Uh, maybe draw some traffic to the sports books, but people aren't apparently are not really betting those far out in advance matchups that don't even have a date to them. Um, so I'm not expecting massive movement because I'm mainly not expecting a lot of action to come down, at least not until we get a date. When it be, starts feeling a little bit more realistic, you get a date. Um, also, early odds you're playing, you're paying a little bit more of a house fee on that. You know, the vigorish is uh, much higher. 
So I don't expect them to move a lot. If anything, I do expect um, them to even out a little bit, go closer to a pick em, which would suggest more people betting on Bisping. Understood, understood. Um, we had a conversation here in terms of what George St. Pierre, what could happen here? And it, it's, it's a loaded, it's, a, it's a, you know, a bucket of what ifs, if I may. Uh, George St. Pierre versus Michael Bisping. Let's, let's assume George St. Pierre does emerge victorious. Does this guy really, like, do you really want to see George St. Pierre against the likes of Yoel Romero or, you know, Jacare Souza, Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman, who George knows very well and considers a friend? But these are four monsters at 185 pounds, extremely dangerous opponents. Uh, I personally do not want to see George against either one of those four. But if he becomes the middleweight champion of the world and we assume he's going to keep the belt, those are, I mean, your thoughts on those matchups. Yeah, I don't, I don't like those matchups. And um, I'll, I'll be the first to say that George St. Pierre was very efficient and technical, excellent wrestler, excellent striker, but taking a hard punch was not one of his strengths. Um, he did not get knocked down a lot of times, uh, but he also didn't get hit very many times. And when you do the math, if you look at the uber tail of the tape that I posted, the one metric that he looks low on is his chin rating. He was only dropped, let's see, three times, um, and yet his knockdown rate defensively is way above the division average, uh, and even more so than Michael Bisping, who's been knocked down 10 times uh, by the likes of Dan Henderson. So that's to say that punch for punch, if they trade punches, it's more likely that George St. Pierre is going to be the one who falls down first, which is pretty remarkable, and that's against a guy like uh, Michael Bisping. Now, yeah, he goes against someone who hits as hard as Romero, um, who's as you know technical long-range striker with head kicks like Luke Rockhold, I don't think he stands a chance with those guys. Um, you know, the Jacare fight is a little bit more interesting because the striking might even out a little bit more. Um, and George St. Pierre is one of the few people that might be able to keep that fight standing against a guy named uh, a guy like Jacare, who, who would probably have a submission advantage over anyone. But that's assuming he gets GSP down. But uh, for the most part, I don't want to see George St. Pierre have a brutal knockout and have that be the way he goes out. Uh, an, a big fun fight against Bisbing. Maybe it goes five rounds. Um, Bisbing is the, the better guy. Who knows? Um, but there, yeah, there's a lot of what ifs here. Uh, what we don't want to see is a legend just get smashed. We want to see him go out on his own terms. It's fun that he's coming back. He's still, he still probably has some fight in him. He's only 36 and he definitely retired, I think a little too early. Um, but maybe it was the pace. Maybe it was the stress. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to bring him back. I mean, I think the business now is a little bit bigger than it was when he left. So there's a lot of you know financial reasons for him to come back. So that's why it's interesting. But yeah, they should be pretty careful about matchmaking. Um, the Anderson Silva matchup, I do love that one. I think that would be fun regardless of what happens here against Bisping. Uh, so there are still there's still some fights out there. You know, even a, a, Nate, a Nick Diaz rematch. Um, but yeah, those names you listed, we I don't think we want to see that. You mentioned the Anderson Silva fight is one that you want to see. You like that matchup. Uh, that's been the matchup that's been talked about. I mean, you can call that one the, the Mayweather-Pacquiao of mixed martial arts uh, for the longest time. Uh, Sean Pearson was on the show here on Wednesday, uh, and he stated that he thinks that would be a very boring fight. Uh, or was it? I think it was Sean Pearson. And also the bit no the Bisping fight he said he liked. But he thinks the Anderson Silva versus George St. Pierre fight would be yeah, – he said that because it would be boring because Anderson Silva is more of a counter fighter and George isn't really known uh, to really push the pace, which I respectfully disagree because I think he does. Um, but in your assessment, I know you probably haven't looked at the numbers or you may have, I don't know. Um, what is it about that fight other than the hype and the hyperbole surrounding it that intrigues you in terms of that matchup? 
anytime you have best in class type guys, I think it's interesting to put them together and see what happens. You know, whose superlative strength is going to be the, the one that dictates how the fight goes out. And that's what's interesting. So would it be GSP chasing Silva around a ring? Um, and if so, would GSP effectively use his jab, effectively change levels, take Silva down every now and then, ground and pound, get it back up again? Or would he be chasing air and having Silva just pick him apart from long range? Um, so when you had guys that were the best around in what they did, they were dominant. And you have two of those guys right here. And they still have those offensive strengths. You know, defensively, that's, all, that's always the concern is that that goes downhill before offense does. Um, but, you know, it, it would still be a strategic match. Uh, I don't know if it needs to be five rounds, actually, although it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't put that as a main event. Um, but though, that's why it's interesting. But you're right. I mean, it could be somewhat boring from a, I, you know, the bloodthirst level. Uh, but that's not why we watch that matchup. We watch it to see two of the best around, uh, test their skills against each other and see that what if, that what if that so many people argued about back in the day of, you know, who would win in that fight? Because stylistically, they're so different. That's what, you know, this, this turns into a chess match. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of chess message, now, I, I, I'm not saying this is fact. Uh, people can automatically assume because I know George on a personal level that this is coming from George's mouth. It's not. It's not coming from his camp. It's just something that was brought up here organically uh, during some of the podcasts. Um, I, I have this method of madness that I think George and his team are potentially doing here or, or aiming for. Now, we already know that Randy Couture, BJ Penn, and Conor McGregor are the only three gentlemen that have ever won two titles in separate weight classes, with, with Conor McGregor being the only one to do it at the same time. George St. Pierre would probably love that accolade on his record to become a two-division champ. Now, he's got that opportunity, obviously, with Michael Bisping. Chances are happening uh, you know, this summer. He also has the opportunity, potentially, to become the first-ever champion in three separate divisions, meaning Conor McGregor's 155-pound title. Now, you want to talk about a fight that would be absolutely massive, that would likely be the biggest pay-per-view, quote-unquote, of all time. I know it's a cliche that is used in this sport uh, almost weekly, it feels like. But Conor McGregor versus George St. Pierre is a very intriguing fight, especially at 155, considering Faraz Zahabi had mentioned that they'd like to like to have George do a test cut. Well, the only test cut, in my opinion, is 155, not at 170, where George reigns supreme. Um... Do you think there's a viability for that fight there? I'm pretty sure you're probably going to say yes because of, it is the new – I keep saying new UFC ownership. I shouldn't say – current UFC ownership obviously is trying to make as much money as possible with every pay-per-view that they do. Uh, and in a matchup like that, with Conor McGregor's self-paw stance, extremely efficient striking style where he has fighters walk in to that left hand uh, and George Sapir being somewhat of an aggressive fighter moving forward, um, then again – George St. Pierre's wrestling could, could subdue that striking by taking Conor McGregor down. I'd like to get your thoughts. I don't know if you've looked at it on paper, but your thoughts on, on that potential and, and George potentially being the first ever, you know, I know it's a big what if, massive what if, but becoming the first ever three-division champ. Well, having the, having the fight take place is certainly a possibility um, because you got two stars, and that's interesting. Once again, you have an interest stylistic matchup here, which also makes the fight itself interesting. Uh, but the, the weight... Where it would occur, I would be really surprised if George can actually get down to 155. Um, I think he's he's okay fighting at middleweight because of that 76-inch wingspan, which would be considered average for a light heavyweight, I think. Um, you know, he's, he's a rangy guy, and he's a strong guy, and he packs a lot into his frame when he gets on the scale. He was very good at that. Uh, and so 
I could see him competing higher than 170. Below 170, I think it's a stretch. I mean, he would have to really change his body. Then again, we haven't seen how he's going to come back, but here he is training for a middleweight fight or, or starting to build up for that. He's going to be bulking up. To go down two weight classes like that, that would be, that would be crazy. Um, but the fight itself, I definitely think is a possibility. Uh, it really depends on how he looks in this return. If he looks like his old self and he's a world beater, um, then absolutely put him against another world beater and hype up you know, that matchup. I just don't know if it could be for a 155 belt. Um, three divisions, three belts simultaneously. Yeah, that's... That's, well, not simultaneously. Think, not simultaneously. Just I, I, I would assume is this is this is what's going through my head. Okay, yeah. only because the conversation that we had about uh, like who really wants to see George say, unless you're a George Saint Pierre hater, but who wants to see GSP versus the likes of Yoel Romero and Jacare uh, and, and Rockhold? And you know, it's just it, it, it boggles my mind. Um, I think George, if he wins this belt, relinquishes it. Perhaps tries to go back to 170. Or does look at that Conor McGregor fight at a catch weight or try and actually get down to 155, not in the immediate future, but perhaps within six months to a year. So that's why I'm throwing it out there. And of course, the UFC, I think, would be all over this. Conor McGregor would definitely be all over this. That, that's from this. Yeah. And you'd have two additional countries all over this, Canada and Ireland. All the US, USA fans were most of the fan bases all over this. Um, yeah, it would be enormous to have that fight. Um, and I think to some extent, these these big money fights, these high profile fights, even if they're not for a belt, are becoming part of the new norm. And we actually talked about that um, in our first discussion is that under new ownership, they're interested in, in putting on huge events. It doesn't really matter if there's a belt attached. Um, they've been throwing around the interim belts a little bit more recently, uh, just to add some validity to the matchups and and to buoy the card. Uh, but a fight like that makes much more sense than trying to force a title situation on a guy who probably can't keep up with it. Um, I don't think George St. Pierre wants to come back and defend any belt three times a year. You know, that's asking a lot. I think he would much rather stick to money fights. I think he, he goes past Bill Bisping, win or lose, he could go after Silva uh, and then win or lose. Yeah, you know, he's still in the mix for some other big name guy. And Conor McGregor would be one of the biggest around. So all week, um, we've been discussing a few different things here. Now, Elias Theodoro on Tuesday consistently always mentions that, look, you know, I've said it before, you know, UFC is not MMA. MMA is a sport. UFC is a business. Um, and right now, Elias calls them a content provider. They're a content provider for television networks and or pay-per-view for themselves. Uh, and of course, online with Fight Pass. Um, Sean Pearson calls them sports entertainment. It's not a sport, it's sports entertainment. So we want to take pay very close attention as to why the UFC continues to put on these money fights, despite the fact some of these champions, like Conor McGregor, aren't defending their titles all the time. Uh, Jose Aldo Jr. isn't defending that title. Uh, well, he is now. He's, he's, got a, he's got that fight now with interim champ um, Max Holloway. Uh, George St. Pierre coming back at 185. People are wondering, why isn't he going back to 170? That's the division where he reigned. Um, the UFC, as... as uh, People cannot deny it, okay? It is sports entertainment or a content provider. That's a fact. And then yesterday I'm speaking with Frank Trigg, and we're discussing the fact, and I, I didn't realize this, and despite my travels to the United States, uh, you know, almost on a monthly basis, you know, my, my experiences in when it comes to television in the U.S. is literally in a hotel room, uh, scrolling through at the end of a day, end of, uh, end of a long day, um, you know, just working the, the you know, whether it's, it's Titan or any other organization, uh, and I just scroll through. I see ESPN. 
I do see ESPN. Um, what I don't always see is, is Fox Sports 1. And I wasn't aware that Fox Sports 1 is not part of the, nor- of the average or the normal basic cable lineup. Uh, it is it's basically subscription based where you got to buy it as part of the package. So and I, and I thought to myself, well, this is something I do want to bring up with Reed yourself because we talked about what potentially could happen next year uh, as the UFC continues to shop those rights. Do you not want to be on ESPN as opposed to Fox Sports 1? Taking nothing away from the peeps over at Fox Sports 1. I you know, love them. Uh, but in terms of a business perspective, would it not make more sense for the UFC to, to be on ESPN if it's going to be an exclusive deal? Or like you said before, spread that wealth and figure out a way to, to continue to be on, on Fox Sports 1 while adding some content over to ESPN. Yeah, ESPN is a bigger market. Um, it's the first sports channel you're going to put on in any bar. Uh, and you're right, it just takes a little bit more effort to find Fox Sports 1. Now, most people with a, a robust cable package probably have it. Um, maybe I say that out of bias because I always make sure I have it because I'm a UFC watcher. Um, but yeah, ESPN is going to be a bigger channel and it's going to reach more eyeballs. Um, now, the trade-off there is that ESPN is going to negotiate a little bit more and UFC is not going to get maybe as quite as good a price per view or per episode or per show, however they pay for it, what unit of measure. Um, so there's that trade-off. You know, you, you want to get your most bang for buck, but you also don't want to be poor when you're trying to put on these events. So um, they want to hype themselves up as much as possible going into that negotiation next year um, to, to negotiate from a position of power. Now, I think they'll get a better deal than they did last time, uh, but I still don't know if it makes sense for an exclusive deal on ESPN. Um, there's a lot of... There's a lot of considerations there. I'm not sure if divvying it up over multiple networks makes sense either. Um, You don't want to confuse viewers on where they're going to find it. Um, Exclusivity also comes with a premium. Uh, So if someone buys it up, they're going to have to pay a little bit more uh, to keep it all there. So there's there's a lot of competing forces at work there. Uh, And it will be interesting to see what they accomplish this year because there's a lot on the line this year. They have to cut costs, increase top line, you know, which of course will accentuate their bottom line. Uh, they need to pull that off. And that means putting on massive pay-per-view events. They need to do all 13 pay-per-views this year. They can't have a cancellation like they've had here and there in the past. They need to have them all. And they need to have them all be good. Um, and so I think we're going to be, we might see a little bit more spikiness. Um, it, it feels like we have a big card and then a smaller card and then a big card and a smaller card again, at least with the pay-per-views. Whereas in the past, anyway, it was, you know, more steady and then occasionally twice a year, you know, the international fight weekend and then the end of year blowout, those were the big ones, but all the other pay-per-views sort of felt the same. We're, we're getting a little bit more into a roller coaster here, uh, which is fine. You know, I, I wouldn't take away anything from the standard pay-per-view card, but we're seeing a little bit more of these multi-belt events. Um, and that's good. I think that helps. Uh, but Ronda Rousey, GSP, Conor McGregor, there's volatility on all three of those fronts. Um, and those are the people that you need on those cards to make them truly big. So these are all factors that are leading into that 2018 negotiation. Um, and who knows where it's going to end up, but there's a lot to be done this year that will determine what position they're negotiating from. You mentioned Ronda Rousey. And we, her name, of course, has come up uh, a variety of times this week. Um, namely with, uh, and I'm, I'm going to give credit where credit is due, because it was Sean Pearson who... For, who, who the, 
in my head was the first person to bring this up maybe again, as I'm sure it's been brought up in the past, but uh, was sort of adamant with the fact that if Ronda Rousey does want to return, Ronda Rousey does want to compete. Uh, and my other guests have always said, well, you can't put her against the upper echelon of the division because she's going to get potentially destroyed. You got to put her up against someone that's going to be more of a fair fight, but you got to get more bang for your dollar. If she's making $3 million a fight, you got to make sure that it's going to be a big seller. Well, I know who could be a big seller. I, or I should say Sean Pearson knows who could be a big seller. He's all over this. Frank Trigg was all over this. I want to ask you this question. Ronda Rousey headlining a pay-per-view versus Gina Carano. Uh, that I like. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting idea. Gina has been out of the game for a long time, though. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what her motivation is coming back and, and getting back into fight shape. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a headliner. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Given the situation Ronda Rousey is in, uh, getting picked apart like that, uh, you don't want to put her in with someone who's a fierce striker. And right now, that division does have several fierce strikers right at the top. Uh, so that's going to that's gonna preclude her from having a good matchup where she can at least show her skills and, and not get picked apart. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, yeah, Gina Carano, we're talking about pioneer of the sport for women's MMA, number one. And, you know, the, and then Ronda Rousey, the one who really just took this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done good over the top. So um, for anybody who's been watching the sport from the strike force days, they would love that matchup. I, I do too. I think it'd be absolutely fantastic. And, and weird as it sounds, despite Gina being away for so long, it's the fair, it's a fair fight for Ronda Rousey for sure. Uh, and I'm sure Gina would look at that payday um, and be like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Unfortunately, Frank Trigg made it clear uh, when it comes to the acting world, there are times, there are many, uh, I mean, A-list actors are, are booked three, uh, up to three years in advance. Um, and Gina Carano, we know, is not an A-list actress or actor, but, but you know, something could open up. Uh, it is something that uh, we would love to see and pay attention to. Uh, something I love to see scrolling down your timeline and looking at some of the stuff that you sent me via email. Uh, you've got three bouts here at UFC 209, which we will discuss. Um, you put together a graph for Alistair Overeem, Mark Hunt. Uh, of course, that crazy Habib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson bout. My goodness, I can't wait. And of course, the main event, Tyron Woodley and Steven Thompson. But you do have uh, something here. Uh, five things to watch for at UFC 209 according to graphs. Um, the first one is Habib Nurmagomedov isn't the only dominant grappler on the card. Why is that? Yeah, uh, this article, by the way, over at MMA Oddsbreaker, I love doing these. Um, it's I, I make a bunch of graphs of things that really pop out uh, on the paper. So I'm looking for either statistical anomalies or just weird situations. And of course, I, I was going to make a graph about Khabib because in the past, when he's been on a card, and I look at a single metric, a very important one, especially for him, which is how much of total fight time does a guy spend not only on the ground, but on the ground and in control of opponents. Now, the average in the UFC for that number is 15%. 15% of minutes for the average fighter, he's in a dominant position on the ground. That number for Khabib is 
And when I look at a fight card traditionally, he's way at the top and no one else is close. Um, this time, for the first time, I ran that that chart out and I look there and I see a different name, uh, Mursad Bektik. And the name rang a bell because I just looked at the odds and this guy was running like an eight to one favorite over Darren Elkins. And Darren Elkins is a guy who is a veteran. He's been around forever. Uh, and I've you know personally gone out on a limb to pick him a few times and thought he was a dependable uh, grinder. And he is. Um, and his losses really, you know, he, he's got a lot of fights in the UFC. His losses really are only against top level guys, guys like Chad Mendez. Um, so when I saw this number and thought, why is Mursad Bektik a eight to one favorite over a very traditionally solid veteran who's been around for a while? Uh, that number then dawned on me. So if Khabib is a 40%, Bektik is 58%, which wow. is to say that more than half of all his time in the cage is just owning people on the mat. And that is ridiculous because how do you win a round if the majority of every round you face against this guy, he's just dominating you? Um, and so assuming that some of the stand-up is a wash or even if his stand-up skills aren't that great, how do you win that round when you're, when you're just getting owned? Um, so that's a very interesting trend. So it's even more interesting in this matchup because Darren Elkins himself is more of a wrestler. Um, you know, he's not bad on that same chart. He's 37% just underneath Khabib. So, um, you know, there's, there's a few guys on here that just jumped off the page and I was surprised to see Nurmagomedov, I've, uh, I'm struggling on that this early in the morning, um, to be in the mix with several other names. That, that was unusual. So, um, yeah, you, you look down the list and, uh, you know, Elkins is good, but not as amazing. Um, a name that popped up that I was not expecting to see was Overeem. He's actually above average. Uh, Woodley is also above average. He just doesn't use it as much. So when he's there, he's absolutely dominant, um, but he doesn't try to go there as often. Uh, so it's the guys that know they want to get down and they take it down and they keep it there. And those are hard guys to face. And you said uh, new stars could emerge and the betting market already likes two of them. Obviously, you mentioned uh, Mursad Bektic, uh, but there is another one. Yeah, Lando Venata. Um, so fans may remember him from nearly knocking out Tony Ferguson in his debut. He came in on very short notice, massive underdog. No one knew who this guy was. And two days before the fight, I get a phone call from one of his training partners, a friend of mine. And he says, hey, um, you know, I heard my friend Lando Venata is this massive underdog. How do I bet on him? Because this guy's amazing. I think he might beat Ferguson. And I took that phone call and I thought, that is- <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got to go run to my computer. Um, and, and sure enough, I look up, he's this huge, enormous underdog. I had no idea who he was and therefore I have no information on him. I can't, you know, predict who's going to win this fight even with numbers. Um, but sure enough, I sat there watching that fight with renewed interest and Man, Venata looked very slick, very talented, very comfortable being thrown into a situation like that. Um, everybody thought he was just being thrown to a lion, and he went in there and had Ferguson wobbled, falling over multiple times. Uh, the crowd was going crazy. He did eventually gas uh, in the second round, I think, and fell victim to one of those chokes. Um, but clearly, he impressed a lot of people. He comes back in his next performance, this time with a full training camp, they put him in against a striker with John McDessey, who is a very good striker and on paper as well. Um, and Venata knocks him out in highlight real fashion with a spinning wheel kick. So um, this guy has some hype, uh, but he's got hype from both places. He's got hype on a highlight reel for doing very well, even in a, even in a loss. 
he's got hype from the guys he trains with who are like, this guy is super, super good everywhere. Uh, wait till you see what he does. Uh, so I think that's what's driving some of this. Now, I will say his opponent also looks pretty good on paper and is also 2-0. Uh, David Tabor's a bad man, yeah. Yeah, and, and he's he's uh, showing up very well in his striking. So this fight, I think, is awesome for the pay-per-view portion of the card. They've sandwiched it in the middle of a bunch of fights of people that you've definitely heard of. And then there's going to be this fight. And I think this might steal the show in terms of being just a wild striking duel. You're going to see spinning stuff. You're going to see all kinds of things. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this matchup. And if Anata wins again, um, yeah, this guy, they're going to start promoting this guy. So watch out for that name. Uh, you also mentioned that the, the interim lightweight title fight will see a position mismatch. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at these guys on paper, uh, the Uber tail of the tape, you see kind of a, a stack of check marks in the, in the striking department for Tony Ferguson. And then on the mat, you see everything goes towards, Nurmagomedov and accept the submission game. So um, the rate of submission attempts per minute for Tony Ferguson is very, very high. You see him in fights going choke after choke after choke. Um, and so that pumped up that metric and he has choked out a lot of people. Uh, now is Khabib going to fall prey to a choke? I think he's, his defense is probably a little bit better than most. Um, but the question is, does he even bother trying to stand with Ferguson? Cause I think Ferguson uh Believe it or not, I think Ferguson is an even better striker than it shows up on paper. He's got a um, six-inch reach advantage. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's also going to help. Um, he's a very rangy guy for lightweight, like extraordinarily rangy. That's that's the reach that GSP has uh, that we said was amazing for welterweight. So at lightweight, it's ridiculous. Um, so he's extremely rangy. He, he knows how to use that range. Um, he is a little wild and aggressive, um, probably to his credit. It makes him fun to watch. But his head strike defense is actually kind of low. It's below average, which is unexpected for a guy fighting for a title. Um, normally, champion caliber people tend to have very good defense. That's how they get to be in that position. That's how they stay in that position. Uh, Ferguson is a little bit wild, um, whereas Khabib is very conservative and reserved. So Khabib doesn't put a lot of output out. Um, you know, He has scored some knockdowns with some unorthodox strikes. But... I think this boils down to Khabib is only going to be standing long enough to set up the takedown. I don't think he wants to trade with Ferguson for an extended period of time. Even if Ferguson is being a little bit wild and Khabib is being uh, more conservative and waiting for that opportunity, um, Ferguson is a dangerous man. And that reach advantage is going to work to his advantage. So we're, if it stays standing, expect Tony to win some rounds uh, and maybe even do some damage. But as soon as it gets down to the ground, Tony Ferguson is a guy who actually lets himself get taken down sometimes because he is going for those chokes. And that's not something that's not a habit that you can rely on against Khabib, who's going to just smother you and put you in bad spots and make you pay. You also mentioned uh, Tyron Woodley is the hardest hitting UFC welterweight. Uh, and when I went through this graph, I was kind of just blown away that the bottom guy on your graph uh, is Johnny Hendricks, who at one time was probably number one or close to number one. But right now it is Tyron Woodley. And you have a list. I don't know if it's 20 fighters there. I just at the top of my eye. But yeah, Tyron Woodley is the hardest hitting UFC welterweight. Yeah, and it's, it's actually not even close. Um, so if you look at this graph, and, and definitely people out there to follow along, look at this graph. It's very close. Like each next guy up is just incrementally slightly more than the rest. And you get to the very top of the list uh, and all of a sudden it just jumps out there. Um, and when you back calculate what this graph means, it basically means that every eighth head strike, power head strike from a distance that Tyron Woodley lands, his opponent falls down. 
um, which is a factor of two things. One, he's extremely powerful, but two, he's also very reserved. He doesn't throw a lot of punches that aren't ill-intended. So um, he's, he's a bit hesitant, conservative. We've seen that in his fights before. It's actually been a bit of a frustration, like when he fought Jake Shields, where he didn't engage. And when he did, he did well, but he just was kind of hesitant and, and locked up there. Um, and, and with Stephen Thompson, you know, it, closing that range uh, is difficult against someone who's as good as Thompson. We'll get to that. Uh, but yeah, Tyron Woodley, um, the hype is real. You know, we've been kind of saying he's probably the hardest hitter in the division. Well, we did the math and he really is. Well, he may be the hardest hitter in the division, uh, but you also state that Stephen Thompson is the most effective striker in the division. Yeah, and it's the game of hit and don't be hit. You know, if you boil down a striking sport, that's what it's all about. Hit the other guy and don't let him hit you. And not only is Thompson very rangy, um, he uses a stance that adds to his range because those long legs and, and a high, high mix of his strikes are kicks uh, and they're long, long range kicks. So he has a great way of creating space and owning that outer perimeter uh, and keeping that perimeter there because he's able to move, stick and move and counter strike when people come forward. And so not only is he very precise, um, he's able to somehow throw a few extra punches in there when someone comes forward with one. And it's really impressive how, how he does that. He makes people pay for coming forward. Um, and then he's also attacking them as they go back with his feet. So he's, he's this weird, like, multi-strike threat. Uh, and then when you do the math in terms of minute to minute, how many strikes are you landing on your opponent versus receiving? He is the highest in the division. And Carlos Condit was second on the list. Um, Neil Magny, Nate Diaz, Ben Saunders, Jordan Meehan. These are guys who are all long-range guys. Uh, they're comfortable standing up. They're comfortable striking at, at a distance. They have long reach. Um, and yet Stephen Thompson is the best of them all. Uh, and, you know, more so than perhaps those other guys, he's also using a lot of kicks, which, which has the power threat uh, for an increased threat of knockdown. So um, that's what makes Thompson such a weird guy to deal with. Like you're paying if you retreat, you're paying if you go forward, if you stand in the pocket, there's no real safe place against a guy like him. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, you, you mentioned weird. Uh, this is a rarity. Um, I've known you for quite some time. Uh, I've read the book Fightnomics. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to get your copy. Uh, I believe it's available on Amazon, but Fightnomics is a fantastic book. Rarely does this situation happen. Now, I usually get... I get gut feelings when it comes to boats. Uh, I, I do write an article every Friday or generally every Friday when it comes to the UFC. And it's just called Fun Bets. And I basically talk about prop bets that, that you know, people should be paying attention to because, uh, you know, you get extreme value for those types of, of wagers. Now, there's a gut feeling I have that Mark Hunt will defeat Alistair Overeem. And then I get your graph. <laughs> I realize, what am I thinking? Because I look at your graph, uh, the Uber tail of the tape, excuse me. And I'm like, oh boy, maybe I should reevaluate this because according to all these check marks under the Alistair Overeem column, uh, I may be incorrect. Am I? Uh, I'll I'll disagree just because you know the uh, the math told me to. Um, I was looking at this, and I, I think it's an even matchup in the terms of both guys are fully capable of putting the other one to sleep. So let's accept that um, they both are powerful. Uh, they are also both susceptible, and that's an important factor here. You know, both guys, when hit, have been going down lately. Um, and Mark Hunt, I think people think of him as having an iron chin, but lately, not so much. Um, he has been knocked out. So uh, I would argue that they both have a lot of power. 
Overeem gets a slight edge. Overeem is also more vulnerable slightly, at least on paper. Uh, but the problem here is the range. So this is another fight where you have a six inch, uh, yeah, six differential. Wow. And Overeem is also more of a counter striker. He's hesitant. So he's not going to be bull rushing forward and getting caught. He's going to have the range advantage. He might bait hunt in who, and hunt is uh, usually un, you know, outgunned in terms of range at heavyweight. And you know, consider his, his reach is 74. He's a heavyweight. He has a lower reach than George St. Pierre and Tony Ferguson um, by two inches. So he's a guy that actually does push forward. He, he tries to be aggressive and counts on the fact that he can take a few shots in order to deliver the one that makes a difference. Um, but in doing that, he drops his defense. So his uh, head strike defense is poor. He moves forward. He tends to be aggressive. And he's been able to do that because he was durable and he was resilient. He could take a few punches on the way in, and then he put someone down with that big hand. Um, Overeem is the kind of guy who's going to bait you forward, be very slow, eye you down, stalk you. And then when the exchange happens, Overeem is the most precise striker in the UFC, not just heavyweight. He's the most precise power striker in the entire UFC, more than half of his strikes land. Now, remember, the average is supposed to be somewhere around like 28% in terms of power head strikes actually landing from a distance. It's like one in four. This guy is better than half. Um, it's unusual to see anyone anywhere close to that. I think the the highest number I've seen lately was Amanda Nunez uh, being somewhere in the 40s. Uh, but Overeem, he finds his target and he waits for it too. And that dynamic, I think, plays to his favor here. He's also got some ground advantages. Um, he has been willing to work ground and pound. When they fought back in Dream, Overeem submitted Mark Hunt. Um, I don't see that scenario playing out. I think, A, Mark Hunt has worked on his, his defense quite a bit. Uh, but I think, B, I think these guys are just going to trade leather and, and figure it out on their feet. Um, we're 24 hours away from Rashad Evans taking on Dan Kelly. I still don't know what to think of this bout. Uh, I never thought in, in my wildest dreams after watching the ultimate fighter Canada or ultimate fighter nations, it was team Canada versus team USA. And I saw Dan Kelly and I always thought that, you know, based on what was happening outside of his, uh, fighting career with his, with his child and just in, in general, that he wasn't ever going to make it any further than a few fights out of that ultimate fighter episode or that season. Uh, and now I find him competing against Rashad Evans at the time, who was a light heavyweight. Uh, I never thought I would see this fight take place. I still don't know what to think of this fight. I don't know what to expect. Uh, we've seen Rashad Evans sort of take a dip in terms of what his career um, was before. Uh, any just surface thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's, it is a weird uh, situation. Um, Rashad Evans was supposed to fight Tim Kennedy not that long ago on the big, I think it was the Madison Square Garden card, maybe. Um, you know, that, well, yeah, it was Madison Square Garden and then Toronto, and, and both of them fell through. Right, right. And so, you know, he's a guy used to facing big names, uh, former champion, and he's dropping a middle to middleweight. You would expect him to face some elite talent because he's sort of in the mix, hypothetically, if he wants to be there, uh, just based on credentials alone. Uh, and then you have Dan Kelly, who's the opposite of that. He's really flown under the radar. And although he has racked up some impressive wins, he definitely does not have the name brand that Rashad Evans does. So, um, it's a weird fight in that respect. What's weirder is that you think of Rashad Evans coming back as kind of the older guy and coming out of retirement and it, can he still do this? And then you look on the other side of the cage, you've got Dan Kelly who has been doing this and he's 39. He's actually older than Rashad Evans. So there's weirdness all over the, here. Um, you also have another situation where we have a massive reach differential. 
this time favoring Rashad Evans. Uh, and if he, if he still has some of that speed that he used to have offensively, um, that's going to be very impressive with the reach advantage that he's going to have. So um, he's used to facing big guys uh, and, and sometimes getting into shootouts and sometimes losing them. Um, but this is a situation where he actually could do well. Uh, Dan Kelly, at least in striking metrics, offensively somewhat hesitant uh, but accurate. Uh, defensively a little bit below average in terms of taking too many punches, but he has been surviving those for the most part. Um, I think if they get in a shootout, I think Evans knocks him out. Uh, but on the ground, it's actually an interesting contest uh, because Dan Kelly is a world-class grappler, uh, primarily judo. Uh, so how does that translate to facing a wrestler? I think that will be uh, an interesting part of this fight is when it does get to the clinch, who does what? Does anybody get top control and what happens on the ground? Um, so it's still an interesting fight. Uh, we want to see what Rashad Evans shows up because if he shows up and we see a first round knockout, all of a sudden, a lot of possibilities open up because he was a t- very talented guy. And, and then he just took this really extended layoff, um, from injuries and he was doing the broadcast thing. And, uh, it just seemed like there wasn't the same desire. Um, so the fact that he's coming back, he says he's motivated. He's been able to make weight at middleweight is remarkable. Um, so we'll, I guess we'll find out fairly soon today. Uh, but this is still an interesting fight for a lot of reasons. I, I'm still going to be intrigued by it. Um, it's just not going to be the, the really flashy, the flash of some of these title fights. Uh, I'm scrolling through my phone right now because they have already had the weigh-ins. The, um, nope, he's not here just yet. Uh, no, 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 no. Rashad <laughs> Evans, Rashad Evans. Okay. Nothing, nothing yet. Uh, so okay. he's probably going to try and go. Oh no, Rashad Evans, one eighty-five. So he made the weight. Bam, he made it. the weight. Uh, but the main event is Tyron Woodley versus Stephen Thompson, a fight we've already seen before. The proverbial round six will commence probably twelve fifteen, twelve thirty a.m. Sunday morning Eastern. Um, it's it's a fight that you know they both said they are going to bring. New things to the octagon, both Stephen Thompson and Tyron Woodley, but we all know what happens when you get fatigued. You go back to what you know, uh, and what you generally know is what is available on the Fightnomics Uber tail of the tape. Uh, in terms of this main event, how do you see this one potentially unfolding? Well, on paper, um, it's exactly what we saw in that first fight. We saw Woodley being the better wrestler and being the more powerful striker and dangerous striker. And we saw Thompson being the more effective long-range striker and being more evasive and being more accurate. So uh, what we expected to see is what we saw. So the question is, what changes? Does either guy change his game plan? Does Thompson make sure that his takedown defense is super on point such that he can force a round-to-round point-strike situation? Or does Woodley go for the wrestling more often, try to win enough rounds to make this less close, and then give himself the optionality of, going after a monster right hand when he chooses to, um, and maybe after setting that up with enough level changes. Um, so I, there are still two more, more than two paths to victory here. There's knockout potential on both sides. There's decision potential on both sides through very different methods. Um, so that's why I think it's a very close coin flip type situation. It's interesting that Thompson, first of all, was, it was interesting when he was a two to one favorite, more than a two to one favorite at one point in the first fight, I thought that was a little bit extreme. Um, I certainly saw value on Woodley, uh, and I think I still do. Um, as long as the odds are favoring Thompson um, more than a pick'em, 
I think the value is on Woodley here, at least from a betting perspective. Um, however, I would concede this is essentially a coin flip because they they both have so many paths to victory um, and they both are so good at what they rely on. And all you have to do is get that fight in your world and you will own those minutes or that round. Uh, and each one did exactly that. They were able to own the other guy for certain rounds. Um, it's just that it was the mix and the accumulation of which that led to the draw. Um, so I, I want to see round six through 10. I want to see a situation where there is a clear winner. Um, we don't want another Bruce, Bruce Buffer saying, I'm sorry, everyone, there's been a mistake. <laughs> the, uh, you know, this is right after the Oscar decision just days ago where they had to reread a decision. And that actually happened to Bruce Buffer. So it's kind of fitting with the Oscar moment is um, of the UFC is about to get cleared up, hopefully. Absolutely. All right. We're going to wrap this up here. Anything you'd like to say to the peeps tuned in live right now and to those that are uh, probably tuning in later on uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher? Uh, well, if, if you like the stats here, I realize we've been talking about a lot of graphs. They're almost all posted on my timeline on Twitter with links to various sites where we've got content posted. So um, definitely check those out. Uh, we're always looking for new ideas. If you have a new idea for a graph you want to see or analysis you want to see, reach out. Let us know. We're happy to do it. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, uh, Reed Kuhn. Make sure you do follow him online. He's on Facebook now. Uh, also on Twitter, at Fightnomics. You can follow yours truly, at Showdown Joe. Uh, and, of course, for all your mixed martial arts news, at Fightful MMA and, of course, FightfulMMA.com. For now, I want to t- wish everyone a very happy and safe Friday. Tomorrow night, after the UFC 209 pay-per-view, join yours truly and Sean Ross Sapp. The moment the interview is done with the winner, potential winner, between Stephen Thompson and Tyron Woodley, I will rush from my living room into this office here and we will get the post-fight podcast underway for now everyone be safe thank you very much for your time uh and as always hit us up on social media for any thoughts comments and concerns ciao it's lunchtime at tim hortons and we're serving up a special deal just for you our new 599 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.